poopy. This gets uh, rather labyrinthine. And when you start to read all the accounts, it's one of those cases of, um, one of those cases of, um, you know, reference overload. Somewhere you got to take a stand. Somewhere there must be uh, a line through all this that uh, one can support. Uh, and then there's also kind of like a humorous element to this. You know, and of course, only time can can allow us to talk about some kind of levity when it comes to the assassination of a chief executive uh, or the assassination of anyone. I mean, we watch these movies about um, the mafia, Goodfellas and all that, and we kind of snicker along. But people, I mean, they kill people. You know, that's that's the end of someone's life. What a Clint would say in uh, The Unforgiven. It's a hell of a thing. You know, you take all that, that one owns. That's it. Everything that one has, you took it. Still in this situation, um, as it relates to the kidnapping plots, uh, no one got hurt thus far. No one got hurt. And because of that, I feel a little bit more at ease at kind of like looking at some of this stuff, yeah, in a, in a light manner. Now, Booth originally was given control over the kidnap plot desired by the businessmen, the, the ones that were behind the um, beef-slash-pork-for-cotton deal. And as uh, we've talked about in segments gone by, eventually a Booth was relieved of the businessman's plot, as was uh, explained in a letter by Barnes to Watson, uh, they just had enough of, of, of Booth's posturings, and they decided to go with Boyd. But Booth was a little busy, busy beaver anyway, and uh, he decided that he would still kidnap the president and beat everyone to the punch. Uh, everyone meaning, for the most part, this main kidnapping plot that was now the purview of James W. Boyd, a captured Confederate spy who uh, flipped uh, in exchange for the ability to visit his uh, now seven orphan children uh, and to be able to more or less hang out in his digs that he knew so well, which was Tennessee. All right, so that was all going on. But Booth now was not happy about being displaced, so he was going to go ahead and figure out something else. So let me just pick it up, and this is in the book, uh, John Wilkes Booth, Beyond the Grave, by W.C. Jameson. And it's one of these books that kind of gives you a survey of everything that possibly could have been, um, what happened to Booth after the fact. Uh, it, it just gives you um, a menu. And for that, it's not, it's not bad. And I see it for a reason here. Uh, there's some interesting tidbits that... Jameson doesn't footnote. He gives a list of uh, books, articles, you know, magazine articles, newspaper stuff at the end of the book. But, you know, I, I don't know where he got certain things, and I get kind of, well, I mean, I just, you know, I don't want to use a source like that for getting, like, really, really serious. But uh, as it pertains to some of these kidnapping plots, I, he probably does sum it up well, and we'll pick it up. Uh, Booth had played Ford's Theater on numerous occasions. For several afternoons in a row during December 1864, he entered the building and undertook an intense study of how the kidnapping should progress. He determined that once the lights were lowered, Lincoln could be grabbed in his private box with his hands cuffed, 
lowered to the stage, carried bodily out into the alley, placed in a carriage and spirited toward the Navy Yard Bridge and Maryland. Now think about this, folks. Is everybody going to just stand there and watch this thing go down? I mean, think about all that has to take place here. I'm sorry. This is a little bit Monty Python-ish, you know. <laughs> okay, yeah, all right. The show starts. The lights are lowered. Lincoln is grabbed in his private box. He's cuffed. He's lowered to the stage. And I'm sure he's not putting up any kind of fight during this whole time, right? All right. Come on here. I'm working off my little iPad here, which I hate. Um <clears throat> Then he would be carried uh, bodily out into the alley, placed in the carriage, and spirited toward the Navy Yard Bridge. All right. Now, while he's being tied up and lowered, you know, yeah, I mean, this, more than just Jameson's account, which he got from someone else. I mean, these are all second-tier researchers, and there's nothing wrong with that. But they're not the ones that were there at that time, and none of us can be. So what Jameson offers us, and from where, whatever source he got it from, is accurate. All right, so moving on. Um, despite often expressed discouragement from his co-conspirators, particularly Arnold, that would be Samuel Arnold, and O'Loughlin, that's Michael O'Loughlin, both of these are Baltimore boys who knew Booth way back. Uh, Booth was convinced that such a plan could work. Rather than becoming discouraged by the others, he grew even more excited and eager. David Harold was given the responsibility of assembling a team of horses to be used as a relay, if necessary, on the southern bank of the Anacostia River, Near the Navy Yard Bridge, John Surratt was to tell Azerot at Port Tobacco to have a flatboat at the ready to receive the carriage bearing the uh, kidnapped president. At this point, when I'm reading this, I intend to put up some kind of map that you can access. Uh, I don't need to draw it up necessarily, but so you know what's going on. Yes, the Anacostia Bridge is on the east end of D.C. That would be the way that anyone would go, no matter what they decided to do to the president. And, in fact, that is where the conspirators lit out after the deed was done. Uh, Booth gathered materials he believed necessary to carry out the plot, handcuffs, ropes, and a gag. Would, would that be a, a joke? No. He arranged to have them stored in a room at the National Hotel. He also provided for a carriage to be pulled up in the alley next to the stage door to signal from one of the recru recruits. As the evolved plan, as, rather as a plan evolved, old age is a bitch, Booth decided that he and Surratt, on the dimming of the house lights, would enter the presidential box, here we go, grab Lincoln, gag and handcuff him, and then lower him to the stage using ropes. Well, what else? Levitation, perhaps. From there, he was to be lifted by Powell and rushed out the backstage door, placed into the carriage, and transported to Maryland. Booth decided that the evening of January 18, 1865, would be the best time to take the president. Now, this is even before he gets booted off the other uh, kidnapping plot. So this is, uh, this is Booth by himself, and I mean, without dealing with the businessman. Well, men and equipment were readied, and minute by minute the tension mounted. That night, however, it rained and stormed, and Lincoln chose not to attend the theater. During the first week of March 1865, and this is when the letter was written by Barnes to... Uh, to Watson saying, get rid of Booth, but Booth would not find out about this until a little bit later, and we've already dis discussed that as we read in, as I read in, in uh, Dark Union, when he went up to uh, Montreal and then found out uh, in the presence of Booth and Barnes that, uh, Boyd and Barnes that, yeah, dude, they didn't want to kick him out because they didn't want to piss him off. They knew the way he was, so they figured they would not 
try to um, embarrass him or disrespect him by giving him something really lowly to do, like uh, why don't you just sweep out the box after it's over? Uh, but Booth knew that if he wasn't the honcho, uh, you know, if you know the story, what did, what did Vida Blue say before the All-Star game back in the early 70s? If I ain't starting, I ain't departing. Well, excuse that trite reference, but this is kind of what Booth is thinking. It's like if I'm not the main guy, guess what? All right. Um, during the first week of March 1865, Booth was surprised and stunned to discover he was being removed as a leader of the plot to kidnap the president. His sources informed him that he was to be replaced by a Confederate officer now in league with the Union. Uh, that following morning, Booth met with Barnes, speculator and cotton broker, and vented his frustration. Boy, was also at that meeting. That's not stated here. Uh, Booth was outraged by his dismissal as a leader of the plot. His chance for glory was gone, vanished, and his actor ego was reeling at the cancellation. After all the work he had invested in the plan, to be treated in such a manner made him furious. Booth exploded at Barnes, pacing and screaming. Okay, we heard all that. Sorry. Uh, Barnes, who stood the game. Eh, we don't need to know about that. Uh, la, 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 la. Okay. Uh, by February, things were not going well for the South. I'm still reading from Jameson. Um, the Confederates were losing their last vital port at Williams, Williamton, North Carolina. After burning, looting, and destroying a significant portion of the state of Georgia, William Tecumseh uh, Sherman was doing the same to South Carolina. It was on his way to North Carolina. The Confederate command of Jubal Early was about to be wiped out by General Philip Sheridan, and Grant was threatening Richmond. Yes, this was the end of the show. On March 4th, Lincoln was sworn in as president for a second term. The inaugural activities were held in the eastern portico of the Capitol building, facing the rising sun. Uh, Booth, having obtained a pass from New, Jer- uh, New Hampshire Senator John Hale, whose daughter he reported was banging too, uh, Booth, that was, was uh, Hale was present at the ceremony. I kid you not. I mean, this guy, well, we've talked about this before, man. He got more chicken than Colonel Sanders. After being given the oath of office by Chief Justice Salmon P. Chase, who, by the way, had resigned several times from his Treasury Department office, and then finally Lincoln said, you know what? Okay, surprising Chase. But, gee, what a bad deal. He then turned around, Lincoln, that is, and made Chase uh, Chief Justice of the Supreme Court. Uh, but Chase was not happy about what took place also. And if you remember, uh, that is, with the with what Lincoln was doing and saying, you know what, we're not going to do this beef for, uh, and pork for cotton deal. Uh, Chase, as Barnes wrote in the letter, also felt betrayed, as did uh, the uh, Liverpool money men over across the Atlantic. All right, as the president spoke, Booth managed to gain a position immediately above and behind him. He was looking down on Lincoln as he completed his address. According to Ben Pittman in The Assassination of President Lincoln and the Trial of the Conspirators, Booth proclaimed to a friend several days later that he had an elegant chance to kill the president uh, if I wish. That's a quote. Also, you can see that photo. At, if I can get it, I'll, I'll also put it up uh, there. Uh, during that inaugural speech, you can clearly see Booth. I mean, that's Photoshop fine. I don't think it is, but you can make out Booth. Eh, I'll just say that it's real, but no matter. Okay, what was what was he going to do? Was he going to shoot Lincoln then? That'd be suicide. I don't think Booth was into that. I think he wanted to like, live after to more or less relish his deed. All right, Booth determined that his plot to kidnap the president was still viable, and he continued to curse the circumstances that had led to his dismissal. Okay, we understand you're upset, buddy. Uh, with bruised ego and growing anger, he decided to go ahead with his original mission, a plan that he was convinced would catapult him ahead of his rivals, one that would make him known to the world. Using a catapult may not have been a bad idea, by the way, to get Lincoln out of that box. Anyway, 
Booth revised his plot somewhat. His new plan began to take shape during the second week of March. He decided that he would grab the president at Grover's Theater on the evening of March 15th. On March 13th, however, the actor read in the newspaper that Lincoln was ill. Booth presumed the president would be unable to attend the theater, so he canceled the preparations. Well, as it turned out, Lincoln recovered sufficiently to go to Grover's Theater. So here's plan two. <laughs> Scuttled. We'll move it along. Uh, I mean, the gang involves Arnold, Azerot, Harold, O'Loughlin, Powell, Surratt, and James Wood. Uh, they meet in the back of Gaudier's restaurant. Booth enrolled a floor plan at Ford's Theater and explained his kidnapping strategy. Most of those at the gathering were stunned at the sheer boldness of the plot and voiced concern that it was too dangerous and unrealistic and had little chance for success. Surratt argued that the government was aware of a plot to kidnap the president and suggested the plan be scrapped for the time being. Well, here we go. This is like failed number three, although they never really got a shot out of the gate. But anyway, at this, Booth's ego took yet another blow. <laughs> he was still reeling as a result of being replaced as a leader of the kidnapping plot. Okay, we know that, that Jameson. Let's get on with it. Um, Booth was infuriated with the lack of cooperation he was getting from his fellow conspirators and even angrier that they dared to question his decisions. He was gradually losing control not only of his accomplices but also of himself. The following morning, Booth learned that Lincoln was to attend a play at 2 p.m. at the 7th Street Hospital. The entertainment was designed for the wounded soldiers being treated there. The skies had been growing dark and menacing all day. The wind was picking up and the temperature was dropping rapidly. Uh, does this sound good for the boys? I don't think so. Booth, accompanied by Arnold, Azerot, Harold, O'Loughlin, Powell, Surratt, and Wood, were mounted and riding toward the hospital by 1.30 p.m., all were armed. They reined up in a grove of trees adjacent to a curve in the road. From this vantage point, they could observe the approach of anyone traveling toward the hospital. Timmy is very excited about this. So is Jojo. According to Roscoe, Booth, accompanied by Surratt, would ride out into the road in front of the presidential carriage when it came around the curve. The rest of the conspirators were to assume a position behind the carriage. Surratt was to grab the coachman, divest him of his clothes, oh, ugly visual, and replace his own with them. Arnold, Azerot, Harold, O'Loughlin, and Wood, isn't that a song, were to accompany the cavalry escort while Booth and Powell cuffed and gagged Lincoln. Yeah. As the men awaited the presidential carriage, a hard sleep began to fall. Sitting astride their horses, they were growing cold and uncomfortable and anxious for something to happen. Presently, the sound of an approaching vehicle was heard. Uh, what would that be? A Ford? Uh, and each man tensed as they waited in silence. Suddenly, Booth and Surratt spurred their mounts onto the road and were quickly followed by the others who took positions behind the carriage. It's really going to happen now, folks. As he, Booth, peered into the window, Booth was startled to discover that, yeah, the, the occupant was not Lincoln at all, but rather Salmon P. Chase, now the Chief Justice. Foiled again! The conspirators fled. Like the previous two kidnap attempts, or three, who's counting, the third was a failure. Booth learned that the next day uh, that Lincoln had been attending a ceremony at the National Hotel where he presented a battle flag to the governor of Indiana. Uh, and you didn't tell John about this. 
Shortly after the third failed kidnap attempt, Arnold and O'Loughlin decided to leave Booth. They were growing concerned that the actor's expanding ego and sometimes loose and overzealous, overzealous approach to abducting the president would get them all in trouble. They told him that they believed the plan was a losing proposition and recommended that he abandon it. Booth refused to listen to the advice from his two friends, and he continued to pursue his scheme with renewed vigor. Booth and his remaining conspirators made yet a fourth attempt to kidnap Lincoln. Again, let me guess how this works out. Unfortunately for them, the president was surrounded by a contingent of armed cavalry, yet another setback. On March 19th, Connors, who was a uh, senator from uh, California and dirty as hell, uh, Connors provided Booth with some information about Lincoln's movements. Gathering his remaining associates, what, all well, two of them, the actor rode to a predetermined lo- location to await the passage of the president, but the president never appeared. Frustrated and angered by the repeated failures, Booth grew increasingly discouraged and began drinking more than normal. Well, that'll help. He was often seen in Tultaville's Tavern, a restaurant and saloon adjoining Ford's Theater, consuming large amounts of brandy and growing irascible uh, and humorless. I've never drank irascible and humorless. On the morning of March 20th, I don't know why I'm like this, but this is kind of like ridiculous. Booth received word about another movement, hopefully not his bowels. He assembled the men and hidden among some trees, waited for the president at a selected ambush site. As they lay concealed some distance from the road, word was delivered to Booth that the authorities were aware of his plan. The man fled. The men fled. And Booth began to suspect he was being set up. You think? Now, I'm going to read something that I have never seen anywhere else. Again, this is from Jameson. Several days following the last attempt at the President Booth, while in the company of Powell, was paid a visit by Colonel Everton J. Conger. Conger told Booth that he knew of the attempt to ambush the President, accused him of being reckless, and called him a fool. He reminded him that he had been dropped from the kidnapped plot. Now, See, if, if, if Jameson would only have used a name rather than just a pronoun, he, meaning Conger, reminded him, Booth, that he had been dropped from the kidnap plot. I guess if he was referring to himself, he would have said he also was dropped. So I guess he's reminding Booth that it was he, that Booth was dropped. It's like somebody had to tell him that. But you see, here's what's interesting, that Everton uh, Conger, was one of the officers along with Doherty, and um, I'll just leave it at there for now because I'm doing this from memory, that were at Garrett's farm and um, saw the death of James Boyd. <clears throat> now, what's interesting is if Conger had this, ob- this uh, conversation with Booth, then he was well acquainted with Booth then did he not know that the person that was dragged out of Garrett's far, a barn to be laid on the veranda of the house was not Booth? Because while Booth was on the run, he had shaved his mustache. Boyd still has his. And they talk about the prisoner or the suspect 
as having a mustache. Well, that wasn't Booth then, but, you know, we talked about that already. Uh, moving on, it said, angrily, Booth informed Conger that he was now acting on his own. He told his visitor that it was he, Booth, who had designed the plan to abduct Lincoln and that he intended to see it through. Conger responded by telling Booth in no uncertain terms that if he did not remove himself from the scene, he and his friends would be eliminated. But this almost sounds now like Conger was kind of like in on this thing, so to speak. I mean, he had everything he needed if he wanted to make arrests right then and there, especially in those days. So it makes Conger sound as if, uh, this makes Conger sound as if he were dirty. And he might have been. So I'm going to leave it there because the question I now have is when did Booth decide that it was not going to be, that he was not going to kidnap any longer and that he was going to kill Lincoln? There's a timeline here I have, but there's something that has to be considered in all this, and that is, if Baker is right, as you heard him relate in his somewhat ciphered message uh, in the codicil to his will, that appeared in the Civil War Times magazine in August of, 18, of uh, 1961, rather. I mean, think about that. I, I believe Baker's right. I believe Stanton didn't, uh, I hate to use the word mastermind, but I believe Stanton sat on top of everything. Uh, and if that is the case, then this thing could not have just been slapped together happenstance. So how far back did it really have to go um, that Booth might have, shall we say, received an okay, uh, implied, but tacit. And, and again, the reason why I think there was something there was because later on when Booth is on the run and he leaves his coat and certain other appurtenances on the uh, riverbank, are we to assume that he just happened to forget his diary? While he's on the run? No. Come on. Give me a break. I mean, it's not like you got so many things or you're in charge of so many people. Booth is with, Booth is by himself. Well, not by himself. That he's with Edward Hinson, not David Harold. Harold winds up with Boyd, not Booth, at Garrett's farm. And we'll get into why that pairing happens. And also they're in the company at times of uh, those who guided them, uh, that would be Booth and Accomplice, to get across the Potomac and the Rappahannock and deep into Virginia. But my point is, Booth did not forget his gear and then went on his way. He left that deliberately. And it would be, he knew he would be, it would be brought back to Stanton, and Stanton had whatever incriminating uh, notes there might be as to what was happening, uh, in, uh, which would have, act, would have been written accurately in Booth's diary, 18 or so pages, 19, whatever it is, that were excised from the uh, diary itself, although Stanton said he got it that way. That is not the case. So, so Booth would not have left that behind unless that was a signal 
of sorts to Stanton. And this is before Booth's ca- caught now. Well, he was not caught, in fact. All right, so Booth doesn't know what's going to happen to him at this point. At least that's the way we look at it, because we can't find anything to the contrary. But who knows? I mean, maybe he knew that they were going to use somebody else. I, I don't think that was possible. But it was fortuitous that uh, somebody else got shot who they thought was Booth. And Booth was going to assume um, the identity of a British immigrant who he knew in Indiana by the name of John Wilkes. He knew at least no matter what they anybody thought, whether he was still on the run or not, that Booth shaves his, his mustache, he drops out of sight for a while, he gets a British passport and gets himself out of the United States as a British citizen. That all happened. So whether or not Boyd is killed and passed off his booth, and yet there were others that they could have passed off his booth, as it, it seems to um, be alluded to, because there apparently was more than just one or two autopsies on supposed booths, but that's, again, for later on. So the point is, to me, I mean, what I think is key is when did Booth decide, okay, this is going to be a murder plot, and did it really, was it really intended to kill as many members of the cabinet? Was it intended to kill uh, Andrew Johnson, the vice president? Was it intended to kill General Grant? Or was that just subterfuge to make it seem like a bigger conspiracy? When if you remember in the first shows that the people who were losing money on Lincoln's uh, flipping on this cotton for pork deal, identified Lincoln and Seward as being the chief problems. Well, those are the two that got attacked. No one else got attacked. There were no other attempts, not even close. So amongst all this stuff about, well, it was going to be Grant, it was going to be Stanton, it was going to be um, other members of the cabinet, uh, that could all have been thrown in there to disguise the two central characters, the two targets that was that were Lincoln and Seward. Now, I had just drawn up some notes about Booth's coming and going, uh, and some of this you've heard throughout the last few segments. I just wanted to write it down and take a look at it to see if something can make sense to me. Now, you know, on March 2nd, uh, there was the Barnes letter uh, informing Watson that they don't want Booth uh, to head the uh, kidnapping plot instead they wanted Boyd. All right. Uh, March 15th, a Wednesday, there was a meeting with Surratt, O'Loughlin, and Arnold. On March 17th, a Friday, a meeting at the Old Soldiers Inn uh, with uh, O'Loughlin, Arnold, Surratt, uh, Azarat, Powell, and Powell. In fact, this may have been one of the failed uh, kidnapping plots. Uh, April 2nd, Richmond fell, so the handwriting was on the wall for the uh, Confederate States of America. All that was left was uh, for the fat lady to sing. April 5th, a Wednesday, Booth was in Rhode Island with... uh, Lola Alexander. On April 8th, a Saturday, he went from New York to Washington 
uh, yeah, he, this was because uh, he found out from Arthur Mills, who was in Canada to uh, access some of Booth's funds. Uh, he was wondering uh, if they were frozen. And, of course, he's also now further irritated about that development, thinking that he's being punished more or less by the the kidnapped conspirators who were the businessmen with Barnes and Watson and and, uh, their friends in Liverpool. And he was thinking that this was the upshot of it, where Mills was quoted as saying, and that was in a past segment, that uh, the money that he was trying to access was payment for goods he already delivered in terms of contraband. So he goes that Saturday night uh, back to D.C., and he's uh, got a room in the National Hotel. Then they decide in the kidnap plot that Lincoln cannot be taken to Richmond anymore because Richmond's already fallen and there's going to be problems with Union Army. So what they're going to do is take him to Bloodsworth Island, which is an island uh, with some funky... Uh, tides out in the Chesapeake referred to also as limbo so that's where they would take him they would put uh, Lincoln on a ship get him into uh, Bloodworth Island uh, built some makeshift lean-tos and such there were materials that were also delivered to that island in anticipation of keeping him prisoner and they're thinking well nobody's going to be looking for him in Bloodworth Island and they're probably right except that if some, um, shall we say, extraordinary activity was seen there, that might bring uh, patrols down on them. Booth is still thinking uh, that he can get uh, Lincoln Lurt outside during an intermission. They would necessarily knock off the lights, knock out the lights uh, on Pennsylvania Avenue, and uh, he would also produce a phony uh, cavalry escort. Now, there were two uh, ships that were involved in this. Uh, They were uh, owned by John Celestina, who was a blockade runner for the most part. He was known to others. Uh, He had the Indian Prince in Namjimoy Creek. And that was going to be Booth Booth and his accomplices to escape by. Then there was another uh, ship, the Indian Queen, off Benedict's Landing, in the Patuxent, and that would take Lincoln away. April 13th, a Thursday, uh, Booth thought that uh, Lincoln might be a, a Grover's uh, theater. I think we talked about that already. Uh, and April 14th, a Friday, Booth left a card for Browning, which you heard about at the Kirkwood. Uh, Browning wouldn't see him. Browning was uh, Andrew Johnson's personal secretary. He went and got a horse, a bay, and between five and six, uh, he uh, had brought the horse to Bathurst Alley, which was behind Ford's Theater. Now, again, I'm thinking out loud. Now, it's April 14th, and he is going to kill Lincoln in about five hours. Powell will also try to kill Seward. Now, that's the only even attempts on anyone's life. Stanton was not attempted on in, the, in this story about how um, the doorbell didn't ring, um, 
that was was being used at the time by some kind of shadowy figure and had it rung, then most certainly somebody would have answered it, and that might have been the end of Stanton. Well, there's some more information to the effect that that never happened. Johnson, nothing happened. Uh, if Azarot was the one that was supposed to kill Johnson, he was not going to do it right from the beginning. We can have more about that later on, but the point is, is that nothing happened to Johnson, not even the slightest thought about it. So, and with Grant, supposedly there was someone on the train that was going to kill Grant uh, as he and his wife were going up to Burlington, New Jersey to see a daughter of theirs. Um, that can't be confirmed either. So you've got all these supposed attempts or, or I guess, potential attempts that never happened. But I, what I'm contending is that were they all clustered around the main goal, and that was to kill, well, first kidnap both Lincoln and Seward, and then turn to kill Lincoln and Seward, as, as we said earlier in this audio, the only two that were identified by the businessmen as being, uh, they thought, responsible for flipping on the pork for cotton deal, which meant that there was a lot of money out there on the table that was going to be lost. Now, uh, back to Dark Union. So do, when, when, does, see, when does Booth decide now he's going to kill Lincoln? And this is a plot of some construct, which we've heard from the uh, uh, deciphered text of Lafayette Baker's codicil to his will. And he lays it on Stanton's doorstep. And I have no problem with that whatsoever. Neither does anyone really who goes into this. They just, I mean, at the very least, they kind of just intimate that Stanton stunk in this whole thing. And there were others that were involved in politics. Conus is one of them. So when did everybody get together, or did they? Or was everything just kind of like passed through buffers, if you will, go-betweens, intermediaries, so that it was become understood that Lincoln now had to go. The kidnapping really had no, the kidnapping had no currency whatsoever. It had no impact upon what was going to happen with the war. So why bother? Um, the only ones that wanted him kidnapped at this particular time now would be the businessmen who did not want to get involved into the whole killing thing, just wanted Lincoln and Seward out of the way so that Congress or members of Congress, well, not intimate, I'm sure they told them straight out, that if that were done, um, acting in the executive manner at the time, they could get the contracts all passed through, all business that was unfinished, finished. That makes all the businessmen happy, and Lincoln doesn't have to die. But that kidnapping plot's not going to happen. So why kill Lincoln? Why kill Seward? Now, if you think that's the act of a madman, that Booth was just so brokenhearted about the state of affairs of the Confederacy, I'm not, I'm, this guy, are you kidding me? I mean, I, I talked to Troy Cowan about that, who was the author on not too long ago, and it's like this guy only cared about himself. I mean, and there's some other deeds that take place after his supposed death, which really are cold. This guy was all about himself first, second, and third. So I can't see him being, and, and the authors, Neff and Gutridge, in Dark Union, do believe that he had 
was incensed by a number of things. One was getting booted out of the uh, the kidnapping plot. Supposedly, Lola Alexander's jabs at him, and he really didn't sacrifice anything for his cause, whereas uh, Dahlgren, in the famous Dahlgren uh, Ulrich raids, uh, Dahlgren died. Uh, and the fact that it was promoted, that it was the Confederacy, uh, well, rather that, here's the quid pro quo, in a sense. Southerners were given to believe that Lincoln wanted this done. He wanted the jails opened, he wanted uh, the city burned, uh, and he wanted to kill as many of the uh, Confederate uh, cabinet members as possible, Jefferson Davis too. Now, here's somebody who, on the record, Lincoln, that is, uh, was trying to get the Virginia delegation, legislature, back into session. He felt that would be a positive move. They could be dealt with on those terms. And this could be the beginning of a, of a, a quick reconciliatory process. That he did. Uh, and he had to rescind it just before his death because Stanton was saying, hey, look, this is not going to work. I mean, you're giving people all kinds of bad signals, and we might even get into that later. And, and it's true. I mean, Stanton made sense, at least in that situation. But it was Lincoln who wanted to do this. So the guy that was conciliatory and wanting to bring back the estranged states into the Union again, would that be somebody who would turn around and ask for this kind of uh, operation? Does that sound like it come from the same person? No. I mean, how could Lincoln think that any kind of conciliatory efforts would be aided by the fact that he turned loose some, uh, I won't say rogue, but I mean, this was a band of, of uh, Union troops that were willing to kind of pull off a guerrilla-type raid and, and right in the heart of Dixie in the sense of that it was struck at its capital. Now, what did he, why would Lincoln do that when he knows that there will be this great uprising in the South for whatever it could do. But it certainly would crush his attempt, and again, to be conciliatory and also with, with his, especially with Virginia. So that doesn't make any sense to me. So I don't believe that that was the role of the uh, Raiders at Richmond. There were papers supposedly found on Dahlgren's body that said that this was the case. Well, one, could the Confederacy have planted it on uh, Dahlgren or at least just gone ahead and said they saw it? You don't have to actually have the papers. You just say, hey, listen, this is what we saw, and you spread that rumor. Or was that rumor spread by personages in the Union government, like Stanton, to make it appear uh, that the Confederates were hatching a plan to do the same, in a sense, to Lincoln in D.C. Stanton and the boys want to throw blame for, for Lincoln's assassination on the South, when in fact they had nothing to do with it, other than Booth, you know, supposedly a, you know, a son of the South, shot Lincoln. And Powell, originally from Florida, um, try to kill Seward. Other than that, 
to blame it on the Confederacy was only to divert attention away from conspirators in the North, uh, in Lincoln's own party, in his own cabinet. So, again, when does Booth now know he is, he's going to kill Lincoln? I, I took a look at his itinerary. I mean, no one will ever know exactly what all went on. And Stanton did much to distance himself from anything direct, which is smart. But you see, Stanton was aware of Booth. And when the National Detective Police were on his trail up in Montreal and very suspicious of him and what supposedly he was hatching, Stanton told him, forget about him. He's a nut job. Don't bother with him. There you go. That's Stanton. When Serac got caught going from uh, Montreal to Richmond at one time, if you remember early in this whole uh, series, uh, he was he was caught and he was released. Stanton said, let him go. And he went on with his papers uh, to Richmond. Uh, Ward Lyman, who was the bodyguard of Lincoln, was also a cotton speculator and was very familiar, as the Barnes letter stated, with Surratt. And, I mean, you've got just all these intertwined relationships. I mean, it was a web of not only secrecy, but treachery. And I don't really know when Booth decided, hey, guess what? This is what's going to happen. He may, you know, and I don't think, here's my point. I don't think that he decided this on his own. Somebody told him to push the button. Now, Troy Cowan feels the instigator in this between uh, the government and Booth was Andrew Johnson. And to a certain extent, I mean, it, it, it may have been Johnson, but certainly only to tell Johnson, uh, to tell Booth, look, it's okay, go ahead and do it, and we'll work out a plan. The plan, is, as Cowan once spoke to me, was uh, clemency uh, for Booth. And that sounds like Booth would have obviously betrayed some of the, his other, uh, his own uh, fellow conspirators. Uh, I asked Troy once, well, why, you know, why would Johnson do that? And it was simply because he wanted to be president. And while I understand that, first of all, I mean, Johnson, as far as I can see, was an absolute crud. I mean, just a callow individual, sounding like a drunk. And and also because if he becomes president. He really is in no more favor with Stanton than Lincoln was. And it was over Stanton that Johnson was impeached, but just barely missed conviction. And it was all about Stanton. So I don't see what Johnson really gains, because all he's going to do is become <laughs> what Lincoln was. And that isn't healthy, because Johnson was also in a... Conciliatory frame of mind uh, with regard to the South, and a lot of the power brokers in the North were very interested in one thing and one thing only, and that was to pound the absolute snot out of the Southern states through Reconstruction. Uh, and uh, and they got it. I mean, that's exactly what they did. All right, so now we're going to go back to this timing now on this Friday night. We'll pick it back up uh, with Dark Union. The chapter, Good Friday, April 14th, 1865. And I had said that um, Booth had left his horse uh, or was attending his horse in Baptist Alley between 5 and 6 um, that night. And so we'll go on with it from there. 
Someone uh, heard Booth call the horse <laughs> a bad little bitch. Saddle goal bothered the animal, and Booth had to arrange his shawl under the saddle, giving additional thickness to the saddle cloth that Pumphreys had provided. Pumphreys was a uh, stable. Booth sometimes used a blanket for the same purpose, which, uh, when properly folded, served also as a hiding place for papers, and to this end he had tucked Lola Alexander's letters into its recesses. A couple of stagehands who looked to the actor for liquor money saw it to the horse and stabled her. Booth pocketed the key, took the stagehands next door to the star, and left them well catered for. He entered the theater, and the star being a bar, if you couldn't divine that, uh, he entered the theater and checked boxes 7 and 8 and con uh, converted into a single space and specially furnished for the presidential party, which Booth had learned by now would not include General Grant. So by 5 and 6, Booth knew that Grant was not going to show up. This was not bad news, necessarily, because it was thought that if Grant did show up, there might be um, more of a, shall we say, protective presence. Interesting, right? If Grant's there with Lincoln, they might get better uh, better coverage, if you will. Uh, without Grant, Lincoln was going to be lucky if he got anybody, and he was unlucky enough to have uh, <coughs> Parker, who was the uh, policeman who was not at his post when Booth uh, came into the uh, box. Continuing, Washingtonians were still in the mood to celebrate. With President Lincoln expected any moment, the lower blocks of 10th Street were especially lively. Barrels with tar torches lined the sidewalks. Touts, whatever that is, hired by Fords, passed out handbills, I guess those are the people who hand out handbills, <clears throat> and bellowed of the night's featured attraction. Under the large gas lamp in front of the theater's vaulted entrances, parties alighted from carriages drawing up one after another at the wooden curbside platform. Here, too, a handful of the president's would-be kidnappers have begun to assemble. I'm going to break off from that for a second. Go to uh, an account of this that appeared in the New York Daily Tribune, April 21st, 1865, and speaks about what might have been going on in front of the theater. Uh, the uh, subhead is... Sergeant J.M. Dye, Battery C, and it's Dye, D-Y-E, Battery C, Pennsylvania Independent Artillery, stationed at Camp Berry, Washington City, in a private letter of the 15th uh, to his father, J.S. Dye, address 100 Broadway, gives the following account of the conduct of Booth immediately before the assassination, which proves that he had a confederate and that is not a big C, but a small C, meaning an accomplice, on the ground, actively cooperating uh, in his preparations for the bloody work. It seems that they expected the president to leave the house at the close of the second act. And they mean the house, they mean Ford's Theater. They expect him to leave at the close of the second act and meant to have assassinated him between the door and his carriage. And this is the body of the uh, letter sent by the Sergeant J.M. Dye to his father, J.S. Dye. Now, I mean, there's not a straight line in this narrative, okay? Not a straight line. And I'll give you an example. 
the letter to whom this Sergeant Dye wrote was his father. His name was John Smith Dye. But Dye writes a book entitled Plots and Crimes of the Great Conspiracy to Overthrow Liberty in America. The publishing date on this is 1866. Uh, I find this book extremely interesting, and it will be highlighted later on. But what I find interesting is, now, Dye in this book talks about a number of supposed, well, deaths by president that he concludes were assassinations, starting with William Henry Harrison, and we'll go on, right? I mean, there was Harrison, um, Zachary Taylor, let's see, and Buchanan. I might have missed somebody in there, but I mean, <clears throat> the jury, uh, uh, well, the jury, and I don't mean the real jury, but the uh, decision was that Harrison died of a cold. I don't know what uh, Taylor died of necessarily right now. And Buchanan was certainly a poison and survived it. But uh, more about that later. But so Dye writes this book. And I think he's very, he's, you know, he's on the money. But he was uh, lambasted by Clara Lachlan, who wrote another book, um, which I've alluded to. I'm not sure if I read from it or not. I believe I did somewhat. But she wrote the book, um, <clears throat> Death of Lincoln. It's Clara Lachlan. And she just kind of pisses on uh, Dye for his conspiratorial book. Uh, what's interesting is uh, Dye, in, in, in writing his book, referred to those who were behind conspiracies as um, slave interests, the slave party. I would also say congruent with that group is also... Um, shall we say, those who are uh, out of Rome. But more about that later. Let's get to the nitty-gritty with the um, letter by Sergeant Dye to his father. And Lachlan refers to uh, uh, the son Dye being there at uh, Ford's Theater. Okay, here we go. Dear father, with sorrow, I pen... Uh, and this is faded now. This is the original paper, newspaper type. And if you uh, magnify too much, you kind of lose the edge you were looking for. The death of President Lincoln has deeply affected me, and why shouldn't it when I might have saved his precious life? I was standing in front of the theater when the two assassins were conversing. He says, two assassins. I heard part of their conversation. It was not sufficiently plain for uh, an outsider to understand the true meaning of it, yet it apprised uh, Sergeant Cooper and myself that they were anxious that the president should come out to his carriage, which was standing just behind us. The second act would soon end, and they expected he would come out then. 
I stood a while between them and the carriage with my revolver ready, for I began to suspect them. The act ended, but the president did not appear, so Booth went into a restaurant and took a drink, uh, then came out and went into the alley where his horse was then standing, uh, though I did not know that any horse was there. So he realizes later what Booth is going into the alley for. Uh, he, meaning Booth, came back and whispered to the other rascal, then stepped into the theater. There uh, were, at this time, two police officers standing by them. I was invited by my friend to have uh, some oysters, and we went into a saloon around the corner and had just got seated when a man came running in and said the president was shot. This so startled us that we could hardly uh, re uh, realize it, but we stepped out and were convinced. So what's interesting is you've got Dye stating that Booth was speaking to a conspirator, that they expected Lincoln to come out between Acts 2 and 3. And then, of course, well, Dye working with the information he has after the fact, figures that's when they wanted to shoot Lincoln, and it did not happen. All right, now, going back to Dark Union. The Lincolns arrived late at the theater. The curtain had been up half an hour when their carriage rolled to a halt at the alighting platform outside Ford's. What they did is, uh, these are dirt streets, and they had planking so that people could exit their carriages, not hit the mud, because now it's April, and it's been wet, and if there was any kind of permafrost, it's now uh, thawing. So these planks are down there. <coughs> I don't think that any of us have not seen a western somewhere that was accurately portrayed as having mud streets most of the time. So this planking was, as you would have modern-day taxi stands, Carriages come up, people offload onto the planks, keep their dresses and, and uh, you know, suit pants uh, dry and clean, and go into the theater. And, and this planking only extended the width of the theater, obviously, and as some say, 10 yards out into the street. The president entered through the center door and crossed the front lobby, acknowledging a salute from the doorkeeper. With the rest of his group, including one of the four policemen assigned as a security detail for the White House, he climbed the stairway to the 420-seat dress circle. They filed along the, the south aisle to a small vestibule that led through two doorways into the converted single box. Within the box, set against walls uh, that were papered a dark red, stood three velvet-covered armchairs, a sofa and six cane chairs, and a walnut rocker for the president. The six glass globes of the chandelier suspended near the top of the wine box cast only a dim glow upon the honored interior um, and uh, yellow satin drapes that overhung lace curtains uh, gave additional privacy. On stage, Tom Taylor's comedy had reached the scene where Lord Dundreary explains to Flora Trenchard why a dog wags, wags its tail. And this, of course, is the play uh, American Cousin. Lincoln and his party entered through the door of Box 8. He settled himself quietly to avoid distracting attention from the players. Only a portion of the slightly less than capacity audience in the white and gold trimmed auditorium was visible to him. He in turn could be seen by comparatively few. Scattered hand claps marked his arrival. Behind him, the box door closed. After a while, the special policeman, this is Parker, sitting by uh, 
by it, left his post and wandered out of the theater. He was a former carpenter with a blemish record since joining the police force. Outside Fords, the president's coachman, moved his vehicle half a dozen yards beyond the alighting platform. The policeman and a White House messenger who did footman chores for Mr. Lincoln persuaded the coachman to join them for a drink in the Star Saloon. Twenty minutes later, the coachman was back on his perch, feeling drowsy. Now, in the chapter notes uh, to this particular uh, chapter, chapter 16, from which I've been reading, uh, Nathan Gutridge uh, entered this. Special policeman, and that's in quotation marks, Parker, was charged with negligence, but years elapsed before he was dismissed from the force. He was not questioned at the conspiracy trial. Neither was the coachman, whose name is Burke. Photostats of Parker's record uh, are in the New York Public Library manuscripts room. For Parker and Charles Forbes, who's the uh, footman, uh, addressing the coachman, which is Burke, see the statement of Francis P. Burke in the trial of John Surratt. The footman Forbes was at the theater with the Lincolns, but no testimony was taken from him either. So, you know, they, they did not get a statement from Parker, they did not get a statement from Burke, and they did not get a statement from Forbes during the military tribunal trial of the conspirators. However, all right, in the um, transcription formed in a book entitled The Trial of John Surratt, this Francis P. Burke, who was the coachman and who was invited by Parker and the footman, Forbes, to go have a drink. All right, this is uh, Burke's statement. Uh, this is the only statement he made to, uh, well, before the jury deciding Surratt's fate in the conspiracy to assassinate Lincoln. He's being examined by the lawyer Merrick. What business were you in in April 1865? I was the coachman of President Lincoln. Did you drive his carriage to the theater on the night of the assassination? Yes, sir. After the president left the carriage, tell the jury whether or not you remained immediately in front of the planking placed there for the parties to get out on. I drove a distance of about 10 or 15 paces up toward F Street. 10 or 15 paces away from that platform? Yes, sir. Then the rear of your carriage was 10 or 15 paces from the nearest part of the platform. I think so. It projected about 10 yards, I should say, to the best of my knowledge, from where the carriage stood. You drove far enough to allow other carriages to come in front of the platform? Yes, sir. Were you on the box, meaning the seat, most of the time that night? I was all the time that night, with the exception that two of my friends, whom I knew, well, if they're your friends, we guess you would know them, uh, asked me to go in and take a glass of ale with them. These are the two. That would be Parker, the cop, the special policeman, and um, the footman, Forbes. Uh, Burke continuing, uh, I left a man in charge of the carriage until I returned. 
at what time did you go in and take a glass of ale? I think after the first act was over. How long did you remain taking that glass of ale? I suppose about five or ten minutes. And then returned to the carriage? I then returned to the carriage and went on to the box. Did you remain there? Yes, sir. I understand you to say you remained all the time on the box with the exception of these five or ten minutes. I remained after the carriage first came. Did you observe anybody coming around your carriage and peeping into it? No, I took no notice. They may have passed by. I saw no one looking into the carriage. I did not see anybody. Did you hear anybody uh, about the theater calling the time that night? No, sir, I did not. In fact, I did not pay much attention. I felt tired. I was rather drowsy and leaning back with my elbow uh, resting on the carriage. Uh, I had been out all day. I could not say that I saw anybody that I paid any attention to. You did not go to sleep, did you? Oh, no. Did you see anybody sitting on the plank platform while you were there? Uh, no, sir, I did not notice. Did you see any soldiers sitting there for half an hour? No, sir, I could not say I saw any soldiers. Uh, under cross by uh, the lawyer Pierpont, who asked this question. You were sitting on your carriage, which had gone on past the platform, were you not? Yes, sir. It had gone past 10 or 15 feet. And anyone in your rear you would have not seen. I would not see him. I had my head turned toward my horses. Well, you know, here, I don't know what they got out of this or where they were headed with it. I, I mention this because the planking and all that's mentioned in, uh, in Dark Union. But aren't you kind of amazed that a special policeman in charge of the president's protection Although, actually, when you think of the late, some of the late shenanigans by the Secret Service, that might be a different story, but, or maybe it's not a different story. But, I mean, here, here's Parker, the cop, who figures, eh, nothing's going to happen. And he goes outside and he talks to the uh, footman, Forbes. Uh, why don't we go get a beer? And then they go over to the coachman, Burke, and like, hey, you, yeah, come on down and get a beer. And they all go waltzing off. So that's between, uh, I guess, what, Acts 1 and 2. Uh, whereas Dye was talking about the conspirators uh, considering that Lincoln would come out between Acts 2 and 3. Moving on with Dark Union. Plotters within and beyond the city were in various states of expectancy. The hour had arrived. The apparatus for abducting Abraham Lincoln was as perfected and ready as it would ever be. This is Boyd's plan now. Horses and vessels were in place. Kingpins and cat's paws more or less geared for action. And it all came to naught, suddenly and rapidly, in less time than the torchlight procession from the Washington Arsenal required to complete its glittering circle around Lafayette Square. Why did the kidnap plan collapse? The shipmaster John Celestina, whose Indian prince moored on standby awaiting the kidnappers, lingered in Washington. Celestina had fed Lafayette Baker's National Detective Police morsels of information. His only allegiance was to money. His version was that the assignment that had brought his brigs, the Chesapeake Bay, was postponed for a fortnight. The, quote, cavalry escort uh, in Washington had got drunk and wandered off. When the, uh, when the night unleashed its frightfulness, Celestina fled town. Along the chain of command, such as it was, someone got cold feet.
Mosby's explanation was that a last-minute message from Lunsford Lomax, somewhere in the Shenandoah Valley that Good Friday afternoon, warned that since the Confederacy had lost, nothing should be done to stain its reputation. My feelings exactly, Mosby recalled, and he had disbanded his command. So uh, the shipmaster, if you will, Celestina, decides this something is not going to happen and decides he's out of there. The uh, fake cavalry, fake Union cavalry, <coughs> uh, got drunk. And Mosby's hanging around, deciding, you know what? We've lost. Let's get out of here. All right. Anyway, Dark Union continues. Whatever the reason for the plot's failure, it had a harrowing effect on Booth. A few of his gang fretted on the sidewalk in front of the theater, and you, you heard that, in a sense, alluded to by Sergeant Dye uh, in his letter to his father that he kind of thought something was up, especially uh, as it might occur between the second and third acts during that intermission. Uh, They were confused, unable to decide what to do. It was Booth's opportunity. Far from calling everything off, he would see to it that something was done tonight. His mind had been uh, in a combustible state even before Lola Alexander's letter, and I went on about that, how she was prodding him. Uh, I don't think it was that big a deal. I think that at this point, uh, all right, and I can only guess right now, and I mean, if anybody has any kind of uh, theories about this or information to the effect, uh, send it along, because I'm I'm not going to make believe that I know exactly what happened. I do believe that Stanton was in charge of something, but how quickly did that something uh come into effect. I mean, it could have been discussed, it, it could have been uh, understood through messages, etc., etc., that if this happens, then you will do this. So you go figure out what it is that you're going to do and how you're going to do it. So both realizes if something doesn't go down, perhaps, it's his time, go shoot Lincoln, send Powell over to kill Seward, and, and maybe Azarot goes and gets Johnson, uh, but there'll be no getting of Grant. Uh, they try to pin... Uh, an attempt on Grant, which couldn't have happened because Grant was gone, um, on O'Loughlin. And then Stanton said that he had an attempt, and you'll hear, well, that's crap. And that comes from the person who notified Stanton that, in fact, uh, Lincoln was dead, and he thought Seward was too. But uh, later for that, our American cousin, and that's the play, of course, uh, near the end of the second act. Booth stole around a Baptist alley. He unlocked his stable and let out the rented bay. The owner had been right. The horse jibbed at being tied. Booth wanted her untethered anyway for a prompt departure, and he called for someone to hold her. It was a bad time to seek help from Ford's uh, stagehands, from the theater stagehands. The property man had problems connected with the wine cellar scene in the next act. The scene shifter would also be busy on stage left, pushing his flats around to stay abreast of as many as seven scenes in Laura Keene's production of The Farce, which is Our American Cousin. Booth wanted his horse held 15 minutes or so, too long for either stagehand to be off the job, but another man was available for holding the bay, a stage doorkeeper called Peanut John, from the days when he had pushed the barrow along 10th Street. Intermission brought the Star Saloon its usual parched swarm. Booth entered last. He had scarcely drained his glass when the play resumed with Act Three. Now, you see, here's what, this is the reason why mysteries continue in a sense. Uh, 
Now, you heard from Dai, Sergeant Dai, that there was discussion about the, the uh, assassination taking place uh, during the intermission between Acts 2 and 3. But here we have Booth entering the Star Saloon, and a little, I guess, late enough that, well, I don't know how long it took him. It says he had, he had scarcely drained his glass when the play resumed with Act 3. Here's the point. All right, how long is the intermission? I'm not really sure what they say here. Is it 15 minutes? Because what I'm saying is that the discussion that Dye overhears, he thinks uh, designates the intermission for the time of the assassination. But it, obviously it doesn't happen because Lincoln doesn't come out. But what do we know about Booth? Did he hang around for five minutes to see if he'd come out, or was it in his mind to shoot him in the box anyway? So did he wait a while, and, and, Lincoln, and uh, Lincoln did not come out, and he got pissed? So he goes into uh, the Star Saloon at the tail end of the intermission, and I don't know how if he, if he you know, what's he drinking? Is he drinking a beer? Is he doing a shot? Nobody knows. So my point is, was he waiting for Lincoln to come out during the intermission? And realizing in the first few minutes that it was not going to happen, or at least halfway through the intermission, whatever it was, goes late to the uh, Star Saloon, and then Act 3 is off. Now, what, what, what that means, beyond a doubt, is that Lincoln did not get popped between uh, Acts 2 and 3 in that intermission. All right, after Booth left the Star, Ford's doorkeeper out front saw him twice in the lobby. Booth asked the time, and the doorkeeper pointed at the clock hanging over the center door. Close to ten. Booth passed through the entrance to the parquet. Reappearing in the lobby, he took the stairway to the dress circle and quietly walked behind the rear rows of section A and B. He paused with his back to a pair of doors that led into a lounge, and he studied the progress of the play. Act three, scene two. He knew um, that the moment approached when the stage would be empty but for a single character. Booth had decided that he would then strike and jump. The jump was nothing. Childs played it with a gymnastic actor who had astonished audiences with his spectacular plunge into the witch scene in Macbeth. He advanced another yard or so, soft-footed, disturbing no one in the audience. Again, Booth halted. From where he now stood, the front of the state box and its sublime occupant were blocked from view. The policeman had not returned to the vestibule behind the box. No one stood between Booth and the target. He reached the door of the vestibule. He had the important details memorized. He knew the position of the president's, a president's rocking chair, knew the distance of the drop from the velvet-layered balustrade to the green bay's carpeting of the proscenium. And the balustrade is frankly just a railing. The uh, proscenium is the area around the opening of a stage, so in this case it's, it's pretty much circular and extends a little bit beyond the stage opening to left and right. So Booth had been in the box. He... Um, well, you know, is there a question whether it was Booth? Some blame um, Spangler, who was a scene shifter and or carpenter, for creating the situation where um, a stick of wood, a bar, if you will, could be placed in such a way, jimmied in such a way, that the door, which opened to into the box, could not be opened. Uh, to me, I believe Booth did that. I don't know how much Spangler knew about what was going on. I, I kind of think he also was, was kind of like, 
on the high end of being a patsy and didn't know exactly what was going to transpire. Uh, but still, in all, Booth had kind of scoped it out. So, in a sense, if he puts the bar in place and all that, that's an indication, is it not, that he was not going to uh, shoot uh, Lincoln during the break? Or was he going to give it a shot during the intermission? And if not, he had what he had rigged up as a plan B? Nobody knows. So it could be, I mean, if Dai, I don't know why Dai would not be telling the truth in his letter to his father that he heard them discussing and he thinks that it was going to take place between uh, Acts 2 and 3 during the intermission. But then you might wonder why in a situation like this you would even do anything but, I mean, frankly, rouse these two guys. And if they're not, if they're not assassins, all right, sorry, too bad, whatever. But just to let it go, because, well, you're not really sure that they're the guys. And he said there were policemen there. Well, were they? I mean, out in the street they may have been, but certainly not up at the box. But they weren't, you know, Dye was concerned about what might take place in the box. So here's another mystery, whether or not Booth was going to go ahead and, and, and try to pop him in the street. Or he was going to go with the, with the plan to shoot him in the box, jump to the stage, and exit out uh, the back of the theater. Who knows? Um <clears throat> All right, we're gonna we'll leave it there for for now. But uh, one other aside, uh, going with at least my feeling that Stanton is the creep in this whole thing, and the idea that perhaps if Grant had gone, he would have had a bigger guard there. There is a reminiscence of this night by an A. E. Johnson. <clears throat> it appears in the Evening Star, which is the D.C. newspaper. February 15th, 1896. It's kind of a look back on the uh, uh, the war. The um, article is on, let's see, what page is this? Page 16. And next to it is another story uh, about uh, the exploits of Colonel Joseph L. Follett, one of Sheridan's commanders. Uh, as it says here, it says, save by Payne's celery compound, whatever that means. But let's go to what uh, Johnson reminisces about. The next night at 1030, President Lincoln was assassinated at Ford's Theater, and Secretary Seward and his son Frederick were fearfully butchered in an attempted assassination about the same time at the Secretary's home, now the site of the Lafayette Square Opera House. On three nights almost in succession, the city was ablaze with gladness, swiftly followed by a night black with sorrow. The president's historians say of his going to the theater, and this is a quote, it was only about uh, noon of the 14th that Booth learned that the president was to go to Ford's theater that night. Mrs. Lincoln had asked General and Mrs. Grant to accompany her. They had accepted, and the announcement that they would be present was made as an advertisement in the Evening Star, the newspaper from which I'm reading right now. But they changed their minds and went north by an afternoon train. All right, at midnight, this is after the deed has been done, the midnight of Good Friday going into Saturday, uh, Mr. Stanton sent a dispatch to General Grant, who was then on the train to Burlington, that'd be Burlington, New Jersey, uh, sent him a, a message of the assassination and summoned him to return to the city at once. 
On the morning of the 15th, the president died, and Mrs. Stanton took charge of everything. And he did the work of care, of thought, of brain, and of the pen of a dozen men. He attended to all matters necessary for swearing in President Johnson. He sent for General Halleck to see to the safety of the city. He uh, called General Grant's attention to the necessity of such uh, action in the following note. And here's a quote. I beg to call your attention to the security of the city and especially to the large number of rebel officers and privates, prisoners of war and rebel refugees and deserters that are coming uh, among us and ask you to see that an adequate force, an adequate force and vigilance are employed. Directions were given Major Auger on this subject last night and also instructions to look to the condition of the forts and defenses. All right, blah, blah, blah. Um, under the uh, sub-bolt head, uh, if Stanton had known. Here we go. In the Secretary's conference with General Halleck that morning, Mr. Stanton told him that had he known that General and Mrs. Grant were not going with the President, he would have prevented the latter from going or would have sent an officer with him. You know, that just kind of conflicts with what has been stated about, I mean, Stanton thinks he's going, obviously around noon or a little earlier, Grant made it known that he was not going. Now, does that mean that Stanton had to know about that? I would think so, but no, I mean, you couldn't get a conviction on that, I'm sure. Uh, but the point is that they never really cared too much about putting anybody around Lincoln anyway. And now all of a sudden, if, he know, if Stanton had known that Grant and his wife weren't going, oh, that they would have put somebody around him? I don't think so. Not at all. That was one of the problems. In fact, as I mentioned earlier from another uh, account, it was stated that probably if Grant was there, this whole thing wouldn't have happened because it would have been more military all over the place. So, you know, I, I don't think that Stanton's being forthright here. And the, the fact of him, uh, as Johnson recalls, just taking care of everything, like Mr. Everything, right? Uh, why not? Because, he, you know, he's covering tracks and doing all that he can. So he definitely would assume uh, all the responsibilities and make sure nobody was touching anything except he. When the president went to Hampton Roads to Gettysburg and the city point, the secretary sent with him an officer who was uh, highly fitted for that special duty, uh, and would have risked his life to have protected the president. Well, I would have thought that that was what Lord Lamon did. Uh, at City Point, the secretary protested that the president should not go to the front. And at the soldier's home, Mr. Stanton cared for his safety. No, oh, here we go, boy. Get the, get the violence going now. No servant was ever more faithful to his master. That means Stanton to Lincoln. Whoa. It seems that fate had a uh, decree that the man who was a model of charity to all and malice to none was destined that night to be murdered. Oh, like, oh, really? Destined. Well, yeah, but not the way you think. Uh, and lastly, at the deathbed, all that night stood the members of the cabinet and others. Not a word was spoken except by Mr. Stanton, who gave directions in undertones through messengers to officers. Well, there you go. To guard the ex exits from the city to prevent, if possible, the escape of the assassins. This impressive silence was only once broken when Mrs. Lincoln came in from an adjoining room and kneeling by the bed and clasping the hand of her unconscious husband, wept in tones that pierced every heart and brought tears to every eye, for there was not a soul present that did not love the president. Whoa, I don't know about that, Jack. Okay, anyway, that is the account of that night um, and the idea that 
Grant certainly gave. Well, I mean, I don't know who he was supposed to tell what to, although I would assume his whereabouts were important to Stanton. And that, you know, you want me, I'll be on this train, and I'll be headed up to New Jersey. So, you know, I, I think Stanton knew and didn't send anybody, no matter what anybody, I mean, no matter what this guy says or what he says Stanton said. This is all after the fact. You can say anything you wanted to. All right, at this point, I'm going to tie it up. I'm not meaning to be uh, overdramatic about pulling out, uh, elongating the assassination of Lincoln, which to me in this situation is not really the issue. Uh, It's been well reported, although I'll go in for accounts of what people saw, and it is is always interesting. Eyewitnesses, I mean, you get convictions on eyewitnesses, but I'll tell you what, given their track record of all seeing the same thing, being at the same place at the same time, not good, as we will find out here. And then, after the deed is done, uh, the craziness that then ensued uh, in the southeastern countryside, uh, in the Patuxent and Potomac and Rappahannock Rivers, and into Virginia, when we find out exactly who got shot in Garrett's barn and who made it off to safety. See you next time.